Hey everybody, it's Noah, Editor-in-Chief here at the Arc of E Network, back with another Flashback Friday episode for you. Um, getting a little sick of hearing myself and Gavin on all of these, as I'm sure some of you are, so I decided to change it up finally. Uh, we're going to hear from the Brothers Blanchard this week, and we're, uh, we're going back to Woodsboro, as it were. This is the Gale Weathers Book Club, Episode 1, discussing the 1996 classic Scream. Uh, now, some of you are probably familiar with this series. Some of you, this may be your introduction to the Brothers Blanchard. These are our cousins, uh, Matthew and Patrick, who reside in Virginia, and they have done many uh, limited series for us, uh, most of which are available on the Movie Arc feed. Uh, they covered the Halloween franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, Friday the 13th. Uh, the list goes on and on. There's even some, uh, some hatchet love for you guys and uh, some Evil Dead as well. And uh, they may even have a few others in the works for uh, our annual Arctober celebration. But more on that when we actually get to the fall and have some more details for you. Uh, but yeah, so if you enjoy the, the Brothers Blanchers, as I'm sure you will, they have tons of podcasts that you can check out. Again, most of those on the Movie Arc feed. Uh, Matthew has his own separate feed, the Four Color Arc, which has been a little dormant for a bit. But there's some, some episodes waiting for you there. I guessed on a couple. Patrick's on a couple as well. And uh, there's a ton of all Blanchard episodes as well, where we got uh, the, the two sets of cousins, myself, Gavin, Matt, and Pat, and those are a lot of fun as well. Most of which you can find, again, on the Movie Arc feed, which is available on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get podcasts, etc. Uh, while you're there, if you're over on iTunes, maybe you can rate and review us, uh, help us get a little bit closer to our goal of becoming a Rotten Tomatoes-approved outlet. That would be cool. Uh, but at the, at the very least, you know, just... Give it, give it a listen. Maybe this will inspire you to check out some older episodes in the feed. And I do promise you will be hearing from the Brothers Blanchard again very, very soon, whether in the form of a flashback episode or possibly some new content. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but until, uh, until next time, when Gavin and I will be back with a new 2x2 retro review, for now, let's take it back to 1996 and go back to Woodsboro with Scream and the Gale Weathers Book Club, Episode 1. Take it away, the Brothers Blanchard. I hear you like horror movies. Hello everyone and welcome to the Gale Weathers Book Club, the continuing saga of the Brothers Blanchard's deep dives into horror franchises where we pay the late fees so you don't have to. I'm your host, Patrick J. Blanchard, and with me on this endeavor as we delve into the Scream franchise is, of course, my co-host, Matthew J. Blanchard, the other half of the Brothers Blanchard. And the other person's stuck here going through these horror movies. It's starting to feel daunting. Like, there's so many. There are. We've been talking about slasher movies since April? Yes. April of 2018. It is... It's now November of 2018. That's right. We've, uh, we've done a bunch of these. We've, uh... If you've been following us all summer long now, apparently, uh, we have gone through the Friday the 13th franchise. We've gone through the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. We've gone through the Hatchet franchise, which is a bit of a departure, but cool, cool, it is what it is. 
And we just did probably the most massive project we're going to do in podcast land. We just dropped a week-long mega podcast about the Halloween franchise. True. And what do you follow Halloween up with? Well, I think I think you follow up Halloween. Well, I think you follow up Halloween Friday the 13th. But I think you follow up Halloween by uh, by talking about something that is definitely in the spirit of Halloween. And I think in this particular instance, this is the franchise that we have talked about off and on throughout the conversations about all the other franchises we've talked about. Yes. Like, we... <laughs> Scream came up in our conversation about the Fridays. It came up in our conversation about the Nightmares. It came up, oddly enough, in our conversation about the Hatchets. And it came up a bunch while we were talking about Halloween. This is the... This is the... the this is the elephant in the room. This is the one we've been talking around yep. since April. It's uh, it's Scream. It's, yep. It's the reason I'm in this room. Well, I mean, I, I feel like you'd be in this room without Scream. I don't know, because I mean, we're specifically in this room to talk about Scream. And well, no Scream, no talking. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's 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 my room, and I think you'd still be welcome. In oh, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there'd still be an excuse for you to come over. We're going to have to talk about movies. But I see your point. Um, yeah, very much so. Uh, I wouldn't... I would not be half the horror fan that I am today if not for Scream. And, you know, if you hear the, uh, if you hear the boys tell it, if you hear the, the Blanchard brothers tell it, our enjoyment of Halloween that they saw at a young age influenced them. Right. So in a way, Scream influenced them through us. Yes. So Scream is kind of the, the, the reason... This whole podcast network exists. Like, none of us would be here without this franchise. I mean, we, we, we credit Halloween with, what, with bringing this whole thing t- together because we spawn off of the Carpenter Revisited podcast that Gavin and Noah did. But <laughs> if, if their love of Carpenter owes anything to our love of Carpenter, our love of Carpenter owes everything to... To scream, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have continued in horror without Scream. Yeah, I was. I was. I was watching horror. It was cool. Uh, I saw Scream, and it, it's one of those moments uh, where, uh, as a film fan, yeah, that you go into the theater and you come out. For me, I came out a changed person. There is who I was before Scream, and there is who I am after Scream. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um. Um. It, yeah. I told the story on the Nightmare podcast about why I avoided horror movies because I had this experience where Freddy Krueger fucking terrified me for a decade plus. Um, actually, just about a decade. It was like, you know, six or seven to about 16, 17. So, yeah, yeah it, it's, it was about a decade. Um, and it was Scream that opened the floodgate and allowed me to come back to horror movies. So, literally, it wasn't like, oh, I wouldn't have continued. I would not have watched horror movies if not for the fact that I was hanging out at Kevin Murphy's house and we were watching Scream. We rented Scream and everybody was like, no, we're going to watch that. And I was like, uh, do, I, do I tell them I don't like scary movies? 
do, do I own up to being a pussy? <laughs> or do I just sit down and watch this movie? I just sat down and watched the movie, and it was fantastic. See, see, mine was, I was in college, and I was at a college party, and it was right. a college party filled with theater majors. Yeah. And theater majors get very buoyant and excited about things. Right. Uh, some of, sometimes the, scare, the stereotypes about us are true. Right. Uh, so we're sitting there at a party, and we're talking about horror movies. And uh, somebody yeah. says, somebody should make a movie that ties all the stuff that we know about horror movies together. Right. Like, we've been watching horror movies since we were little kids. Except for you, Patrick, because you just started watching. I'm like, oh, you're right. Right. Somebody should make a movie from the perspective of a fan. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm charging through franchises. I've already seen the Halloweens up to that point. No, I hadn't. I, I was watching them. I was watching the Fridays. I was taking notes. I was like... What what are some things that are things that run through? There's the final girl. What makes her the final girl? Uh, right. What causes deaths? Uh, looking at it from that perspective, uh, why are you why are you running up the stairs when you should be running out the front door? All the questions that Kevin Williamson rightly asks in this script, and all the things that Kevin weaves throughout this screenplay. Yes, so I that was, must have been like a kick in the fucking teeth. I, like I, to be, I'm doing research, trying to tell this kind of story. A motherfucker just made this movie. Well, see, and then I went in and watched the movie, <laughs> and I was like, I'm too late. <laughs> I missed my fucking window. Not not knowing the history of the movie because I went and seen the movie, knowing that he started writing the script in '94. Right. Uh, I, I started charging through in uh, fall of 96. So you were you were already too fucking late. I was already too late, but yeah. I didn't know it. Right. Uh, I'm sitting there, I'm watching movies, taking notes, and then I go see Scream. Hearing about Scream, the advertising campaign, which strongly featured Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. exclusively. And me... Uh, being born in 1975, being the same age as Drew Barrymore, right. you know, having been a fan of Drew Barrymore since E.T. Right. You uh, obviously needed to be a part of this. I needed to see this movie. Yeah, sure. Sure. And, and then I did. See, I came to it a little later. I didn't see it till it was on home video. I saw it five um, days after it opened on Christmas. But I, I saw Scream 2 the day it opened. <laughs> yes. Uh, because it... Scream 1 converted me to a fan very, very quickly. Um, and uh, so, so I guess we should probably start at the beginning, um, which is... A phone call? Well, <laughs> usually we give a little background about the movie before we dive right into oh, the Oh, yeah, I guess we could go that route, you know. Yeah, you know, the same thing we've been doing for the last... Uh, I'm trying to innovate here. Oh, it's innovation to give them new details. Yes. We'll, we'll just, this is what we do on our podcast now. We just summarize a movie, and then we tell you what kills were good. I mean, it cuts down on time. It does cut down on time, but, you know, it also cuts down on the content that we create on our own. So, uh, Kevin Williamson <laughs> uh, uh, based a lot of this, uh, not based, but there was a was real... inspired. Inspired by, by a real life... A serial killer. Named the Gainesville Ripper. Yes. In Gainesville, Florida. Um, basically, uh, Kevin Williamson was stuck in a house watching Dateline. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I've watched some Dateline, you know, mysteries where they, 
explore an actual killing and been like, that'd make a good movie. Well, that's what Kevin Williamson did. Uh, um, apocryphally, and I don't know, uh, I just found out, uh, the other inspiration is while he was watching this uh, Dateline and trapped in the house, he went upstairs and found an open window. Mm, and mm. it was like... See, I'd never, I'd never actually heard that. Um, what I do know is that he had, he had a script waiting to be sold uh, that was under contract at two different places, uh, and that was his script for Killing Mrs. Tingle. Released as Teaching Mrs. Tingle many yes. years later. Many, it many, got, many, It many got caught up later. in production hell. Yes. Ask us about that sometime in 2020, and we'll do a, tw- <laughs> a Teaching Mrs. Tingle podcast. Oof. 2020? Yeah. So not next year. No. Year after. Oh, yeah. All right. So, so he has Teaching Mrs. Tingle, and he, he, he needs to pay his rent. Like he's gotta he's gotta fucking pay rent, and he has this idea to sort of just make a referential horror movie, and he's got this this Gainesville Ripper inspiration moment about a a, a killer who who calls the person he's gonna kill, <clears throat> which is what that's what really happened. That's the germ yeah. that he took away from it. Um, so he locks himself in a room for three days to write a script to sell. That's the whole point. It's not, I'm writing a script to innovate, I'm writing a script to, uh, to tell the kind of horror movie I want to tell. Although, he does tell Although that's in there. It's yeah. certainly in there. But it's not the motivation. The motivation is, I, I need, need to pay rent. <laughs> I need to turn a script around real fucking fast. So I got to write something I can, I, can, I can get out there I can sell, so I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take three days. I'm gonna write this script, and I'm gonna flesh out treatments for two more. So it's a, it's a trilogy of horror movies. Anybody who wants to cash in on horror movies will buy this because it's ready made. Yep. Sequels are done. He puts it up for sale, and within 24 hours of being on the market. There's a fucking bidding war. Yes. Between Oliver Stone, New Line, and Miramax. Just <laughs> grappling to get this script. He has been negotiating the process of teaching Mrs. Tingle for years at this point. Yes. Um, but Scream, scary, scary movie as it was originally called, hits the market, just causes a splash, and immediately causes this fucking bidding war. And at the end of the day... Oh my god, the 90s were a great place. Right? <laughs> you could just have an idea and people would be like, I like you. Give me give me that idea. Here's millions. Oh. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, the movie ended up at Miramax. Yeah. Uh, under Dimension, under Bob Weinstein. And it, it was that quick. It was boom, boom, boom. He... He had a thing going. Um, they uh, he he knew who he wanted to direct it. Well, I mean, he had two ideas. Um, <laughs> the The first one was not going to happen, which was himself. Yes. Uh, and and the second was a name he threw out, and that name was Wes Fucking Craven. Uh, Wes, uh, at this point, he was tied up in. Pre-production on on a movie called The Haunting, a remake, yes. I believe, 
Uh, and he, he turned it down. Yep. Initially. Uh, and this because is because it was too violent. Uh, also, ultimately. also, uh, Wes was, uh, considering trying to get out of the genre. Yes, he was. Uh, so at, this is the point where we're tying back into Camp Crystal Lake, revisited, because for a while there, the director of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, was attached. Yep. Uh, he was, or in negotiation, not attached. And Williamson, when he was talking with him, said, Friday the 13th Part 6 was one of my inspirations mm-hmm. because all of the meta-ness... In that movie, which I then applied here, that same, that same tongue-in-cheek feel yep. that you had in your movie, I wanted to have in my script. Uh, but then uh, that that was not a uh, directorial decision that no. Dimension decided no, to go. Not at all. Um, Dimension wants Dimension wants to cast up, and they want to they want to do the same thing with the director. They want an up-and-comer or a name. Right, so while while he was briefly on the list, he was there was never any real yeah. traction for that. Um, not getting Wes. There's a rumor, that unconfirmed, that uh, that Bob Weinstein did reach out to the other major auteur, who is referenced heavily in this film, and was flatly told no. Uh, but neither Bob Weinstein nor John Carpenter confirmed right. that Carpenter was solicited for this. The names we know that were that were actually brought in, offered deals, almost took it, took it, and then it fell apart, are as follows: We've got Danny Boyle. Robert Rodriguez. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, I hear, is one of those people who didn't get the vision that right. they wanted. And it's like, oh, good choice. Mm-hmm. And not going that way. Sam Raimi. Yep. And George Romero. Yep. Like, they went classic. Let's go to George Romero. He invented this fucking genre in a way. Um, so, and all of these people either want too much, want to do other things, don't get Kevin's vision, don't get Bob Weinstein's vision, can't compromise between the two, don't have anything going. And then I hear, at at this point, the script gets in the hands of one Gertie from E.T. Indeed. One Drew Barrymore, who goes out of her way to get attached to the project. Yep. Because she liked the script that much. And it's it's the second she's involved, somebody else takes a second look. And that's when Wes Craven goes, Oh, you know what? I could do this. Yeah, I can do this. This would be a this would be a good swan song if I actually want to leave. Yep. It would be a good sort of summation of my thoughts on the genre. Uh it would it would cater to sort of the meta nature of what I wanted to do with the movie that just flopped <laughs> uh, in the personage of Wes Craven's New Nightmare which came out and did not did not hit the way he wanted I know and also because there was a movie in between that and Scream yes. uh, a Vampire in Brooklyn which did not hit at all 
so Wes is also desperately in need. Once again, as we have talked yeah. throughout throughout time since Friday the Thirteenth, Camp Crystal Lake revisited. Here's Wes Craven, and he needs a hit. Yep. And and he thinks maybe this one will do it. And he's not wrong. He's not because wrong because this at all. movie hits for him in a big bad way. Um, I did go through sort of a just a, a laundry list. Of, of the people who could have been here. Because when you when you start looking at the almost words in this film, it's fascinating. Well, even even the first almost were we can talk about was in the movie. Yeah. Drew Barrymore, when she attached herself, and they were like, yeah, we're going with Drew. Drew was the lead. She, Drew was Sidney Prescott. Yep. And she chose as a... As, because I, I, she did have a producerial credit on this, right? I mm. thought, no, she didn't take it. Um, but I mean, Wes maintains that she could have taken one had she wanted. I mean, because she helped develop the project, and she's twenty-one at this point. Because mm-hmm. I know, because she and I are born the same year. Um. So she she is Sydney Prescott, and she rightly makes the call that. It would be more shocking if she's Casey Becker, yeah. who who has the the brilliant introductory death scene that sets the tone for this movie. Everything old is new again. She's like, let's psycho this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that was not the exact quote, but at the time, all the quotes she was talking about psycho. Um, now, once once she passes on, actually being Sydney Prescott. Yeah. Well, then Kevin Williamson urges them to offer the role to his preferred Sidney Prescott, who's a little bit older. Um, Molly Ringwald is almost Sidney Prescott at almost 30. And she passes because she's like, I'm 28 years old. Yeah. Um, I don't think I should play high schooler again. And she passes. Um, and then we get this sort of laundry list of actors who almost fill certain roles. Uh, now, there are some roles that, you know, sit open and once somebody's in it, they didn't look at anybody else. Yeah. Um, but let's let's start at the top. Okay. So Sidney Prescott. We've got Drew Barrymore. We've got <laughs> Molly Ringwald. Melissa Joan Hart. Brittany Murphy. Yep. Reese Witherspoon, A.J. Langer, and Alicia Witt. Oh my God, it's like it's 1996 in this house. It, it, it is. It is. It, it totally is. Alicia Witt, who goes on to be the lead in uh, Urban Legend. And, uh, you know, uh, Melissa Joan Hart, who Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's what we got here. Um, then... We've got all the alternate Billies, okay, uh, who, who include a laundry list of names, but also the rest of the male cast of the actual movie. Yeah. Uh, because David Arquette, almost, he was the one who actually was cast as we went through this. Yeah. Like, all the other names were like, yeah, they, they were considered. Yeah. Uh, David Arquette was offered the fucking role and was like, I don't want that. I want to be Dewey. But Dewey's our classic 
macho buff guy. Yeah, I want that. But you can't do that. I can do that. You can't do that. I can do it. I can give it a different youthful energy. And Wes Craven said, sure. <laughs> but he was he was fucking Billy Loomis. Yep. Boom. Um, so yeah, that's the big one. Matthew Lillard almost was Billy. <gasps> Matt, uh, he wasn't cast. Well, Math- Matthew cast. Lillard is his own story in the in and of itself, he wasn't even in there to audition. He was he was taking his girlfriend to an audition. Uh, he wasn't auditioning for this role, and the casting director was like, "Hey, read for this." Um, and it was Scream, and he was he read for Billy, and they were like, "We like him for this," and he was like, "Okay, I like this character." And they were like, "Wait, wait, Stu? Okay." And then nobody else read for Stu. Like, Matthew Lillard goes, I would like to be Stu Mocker. And they're like, sold. I mean, that doesn't happen. That's not a real life thing. That's a storied Hollywood moment. Right? I mean, but it's the same thing that we've got with with Dewey, basically. Like, we don't know who else read for Dewey. We got a laundry list of people who read for Billy. We got a laundry list, a short list of people who read for Randy. Yeah. Nobody read for Stu because the first one of the first guys in for Billy goes, I want to be Stu. I want to be Stu. <laughs> I like those lines. <laughs> and, and got the role. Um, beyond those guys, though, Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. Both Lois and Clark, Jimmy Olsen's, Ooh. Justin Whalen and Michael Landis. I did not know about Landis. Yeah. And the big one, the big one, Ben Affleck. Little old. Little old, but he was almost Billy Loomis. Um, and since we're talking about Ben Affleck, his, uh, his Kevin Smith Universe friend, Jason Lee, read for the role of Randy. Also too old. Also too old. Uh, Brecken Meyer took a stab at, uh, at Randy Meeks. So, yeah. Brecken Meyer almost in a lot of movies from 1994 to 1998. Like, just like almost in so many movies. And twice beaten out by people with little to no experience <laughs> yes. that the studio did not want. <coughs> but the director's like, no, that is what I want. Yeah, but both times he's beaten out by somebody with little to no experience. Jason Lee is there as well. Yes. I love that. Jason Lee is Breckenmeyer's bad luck charm. Um, Tatum. Rebecca Gayhart read for Tatum. Okay. Um, as did Alicia Silverstone. I did not know about Alicia. Who also will read again for a role in the next movie in Scream 2 that she won't take. Please tell me it's the one that Rebecca Gayhart took. No. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it's the one that Sarah Michelle Geller took. Okay. Um, Gail Weathers was offered to Janine Garofalo. This is 1996. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, it's Garofalo as, times. It's Garofalo times. Um, much like uh, the, the, the sort of Kevin Smith chasing Amy casting story where it's like, no, we want John Stewart 
David Schwimmer and Janine Garofalo. Those are the people who have overall deals with Miramax at this point in time. So Miramax tries to put them in fucking everything, including Scream, because Janine Garofalo is offered the role of Gail Weathers. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't say David Schwimmer was offered a role in Scream. I guarantee you. David Schwimmer was offered a fucking role in Scream. Hey, but speaking of David Schwimmer... <laughs> speaking of David Schwimmer... We can bring up Courtney Cox. Courtney who Cox... Who actually is the Gale Weathers, yeah. not Brooke Shields or Janine Garofalo or Elizabeth Berkley, who is flat out told no. <laughs> oh, well, the, the stigma of showgirls has settled. Yes. Uh, but Courtney Cox is on Friends. Mm-hmm. She plays Monica Geller. She, she's the friendliest of the Friends and is looking to be seen... As something else. And she reads the script. And she's like, this is an amazing bitch character. I would like to be this. I would like to be this. Please cast me. And they're like, Monica, Monica, no. You're, you're, you're Monica Geller. You're you the friendliest friend. Yep. And she's like, no, I can do this. And they're like, no. And it's just through sheer tenacity that she keeps coming back. And keeps coming back. And, and finally, she gets the part. And she wears them down. And... So we then end up with, you know, the the guys who all read for Billy (laughs) filling out the mail cast. Uh, And then no one who had initially been looked at coming in and filling the female roles after the fact. Uh, Uh, Because Nev Campbell didn't audition. No, no. She, she got she got offered the role by Wes Craven. And Wes, was like, Wes is, I I've like, seen your show. I like Party of Five. You can be vulnerable. And offered her the role, and she was like, okay. I don't like horror movies, though. I don't like to be scared. However, Almost I, said no, because she doesn't like horror movies. But, but from what I understand, what swayed it is, I do like the idea of being a lead in a motion picture. picture. Yes. Um... So, yeah, so we have this, this massive, everyone in Hollywood wanted to be in this goddamn movie. And I guarantee you, for all the people we have names for, there are others who auditioned for Scream who we've never heard that they did, but I guarantee you they did. Uh, so we've, we've, got, we've got her for, for Sydney now. Yep. But we don't have a Billy. We don't have a Billy. Now, the interesting thing, though, is somebody read for Billy who had just been in a movie with Nev Campbell and has some chemistry with her because they were in a movie together. Yep, yep, this is true. Well, let's cast that guy. Oh, wait, that guy. Why that guy? Why does that guy ring a bell? Holy crap, he looks like Johnny Depp. Oh my God, does Skeet Ulrich look like Johnny Depp? Uh, and both Wes Craven and Skeet Ulrich have said that he was cast in this movie because he looked like Johnny Depp. Yep. Uh, because Wes Craven was like, he looks, he looks like Glenn from Nightmare. And then uh, after that, which is genius. So he and he and Nev, because they'd worked on the other film, The Craft, together, they they already have a rapport. So it led to a more believable relationship yes. between the two of them. Yes, it did. Definitely, uh, it, it allowed them to hit hit the ground running because uh, they needed to hit the ground running with this close call. Um, totally, totally, <laughs> definitely hit the ground running, um, and and this is a real short turnaround kind of film. Yeah, um, 
Like they're gonna shoot in what is it like eight weeks or so. Um, so they gotta they gotta scout locations fast. Um, oh, we haven't we haven't even mentioned who got the uh, the Tatum and the Randy role yet. Well, we don't need to mention who got the role. Okay. We know who got the role. If you're listening to a podcast about Scream, you know that Jamie Kennedy is Randy Meeks. Okay. You know that Rose McGowan. Like, come on, man. Crazy talk. But yeah, so they're going to shoot in April. And they have a December release date. Yes. Uh, and there's a bit of controversy. Uh, well, there's a at, couple of controversies. Uh, at the beginning of shooting, um, whether they can use a location. Well, before we even get to the controversy or whether or not they can use a location, they start looking uh, to, to, to find the best tax break uh, locations to shoot it. Oh, um, oh yes. Uh, because Bob Weinstein's like, get your asses to Canada. And Wes Craven's like, I am not fucking shooting in Canada. Yeah. Um, so uh, Wes Craven is like, uh, I'll walk from this picture if you make me shoot in Canada. Yeah. And Bob Weinstein is like, all right, don't shoot in Canada. You're shooting in fucking North Carolina. I'm not shooting North Carolina because none of those none of the locations are appropriate. Yep. Like we would actually have to build out in North Carolina, thereby spending more than the amount that we would save. All right. Uh, then I want you to go look at this sleepy little college town in Atlanta. And I want you to shoot there, right? In in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. I want you to shoot there. Okay, I'll go I'll go take a look. I'll go look at your fucking college. I st- yeah, it's a great location. I don't want to shoot here. Um, I want to shoot in Los Angeles. No, we're not shooting in Los Angeles. All right. This is 1996. It's too expensive. All right. Then let me shoot in Northern California. Well, we could... You, yeah. Yeah, you can keep everything under $14 million, Go right ahead. And boom. There we are. So, <laughs> very quickly, we go from... Shoot in Vancouver, to shoot in North Carolina, to shoot in Georgia, which I guarantee you will get back to that. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, spoiler alert, Scream 2. We'll use the locations that, that Miramax wanted to shoot. <laughs> Scream 1 in. Which is a, it's an amazing little little twist. Yeah. Um, but, and an amazing double twist. Um, producer slash writer... Kevin Williams and we'll use those North Carolina locations also within a year and a half. <laughs> Literally, they looked at Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs> Folks, this all ties in. If you listen, oh, it does. It if, totally does. If, and with us, if you've been following our podcast, oh God, we no. right now are talking about Dawson's, Dawson's Creek. Creek. Yes, we are. We are talking about Dawson's Creek. If you want a Dawson's Creek podcast, <laughs> write in. Write in. Send a self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> it's nineteen ninety-six, right? You write in, right? Yeah, sure. Oh, I have a bulletin board. You can go there. <laughs> yeah, check us out on our BBS. 
Oh. Don't we have an AOL homepage? Yes, we totally do. It's 1996. AOL.com backslash podcast backslash Brothers Blanchard backslash Archive. Don't go there. Really, don't, don't go there. I, if you can find it, if there's something there, fucking tell me. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we end up shooting in, in Northern California. And, you know, we end up using some, some pretty storied locations. Like... The Becker house is right across the street from the house where they shot Cujo. You know, there's there's a lot going on in this in this town they're shooting in. The Riley house is next to the Pollyanna house. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's a lot of stuff is shot in this area of, 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 of NorCal. And we've got... Then we've got the controversy you're talking about, yes. which is... is as all, it's always the most fascinating thing. When you look at the credits, if you watch, if you're a credit watcher, yeah, you've always, if you didn't research this, I don't know why you didn't, because end credits, absolutely no thanks at all to the Santa Rosa uh, County School Board. Yeah, and it's like, what, what, what is this? Well, you see, they secured the location for the high school scenes to shoot right. uh, at Santa Rosa High School, uh, but then. It got word out on what movie was actually shooting there. Mm-hmm. And people were like, uh, no. And other people are like, no, no, this is that thing, that, that historic thing called movie money. Movie money is important. And, and then other people got a hold of the script. Yes. And were like, this is bloody and, and this is evil. Uh, now, they were going to have a meeting and it was the uh, going to be the second day of shooting that yep. the meeting occurs. And... <laughs> <laughs> and Wes is like, I don't have time for a meeting. I'm gonna go shoot Casey Becker's death. Let me know how this pans out. Find me a cover location if this doesn't work out. Yes. Um, which history repeating itself ultimately. Because this is the same thing that happened at first with the high school they were shooting fucking Nightmare on Elm Street in. Yep. So here we are. Wes Craven cannot do high school sequences um, without parents flipping the fuck out. Uh, and it wasn't even the parents. It was the school... Well, I mean, school board made up of parents, but still. The, the, the student body was doing write-ins. Yeah, they wanted the movie there. They're like, Wes Craven is shooting a movie here. It's a movie. It's a movie. There will be much... actors in our high school. And you know how much money... Drew Barrymore's in this movie. Do you know how much money this brings in? Do you know how much money... Movies bring into the local economy? Don't you want that? Don't you want the increased tax dollars? Doesn't this sound like a great thing, Wes Craven, Wes Craven, Wes Craven? Nope, nope, nope. Blood, he's, he's, blood, blood. He's the bloody, he's the murder man. Um, so they said no. And after saying yes. After saying yes. And Miramax and Marion Madalena, who's the producer, went out and found another school. Or... Well, Fine, fuck it. We'll build a set if we have to. Yep. And they end up shooting interiors in a community center. Yep. And made it look like a school. And uh, tell me it doesn't. It totally looks like a school. It looks like a school to me. Um, now, while they're scouting these locations in NorCal, um, this is where we discover the mask. Which is, I love the mask story. In Scream, I know I'm. I know I'm the guy who brings up the mask anytime we're talking about a movie. I I know it's an odd thing, but I lo- I love these little 
cool stories. So Marianne Madeline, a producer of Wes's producer, like she's been Wes's producer for a long time. Uh, she's out scouting a house. Like since Shocker. Yeah, since Shocker. So she's doing a location scout of one of the houses of the movie. I, I don't know if it's one of the locations that actually makes it in the movie, but hanging on the wall is the ghost face mask. Um, and she thinks it's the creepiest thing. And she takes a picture of it and shows it to Wes. And uh, Wes is like, yes, we absolutely need that in our movie. That is terrifying. You are correct. Because in the script, Kevin just says masked killer. Yep. Well, because he was trying to keep it, you know. It's sellable. Yeah. He didn't want to put it too much of a stamp on it, so it'd be like, no, the writer's vision. No, he understood, like. I need to pay rent. I need to pay the rent. And, you know, Michael Myers is just the shape. So then they start, from what I understand, they start hunting down who has the copyright on this mask. Who created this mask? Um, first, they hire K&B to make a knockoff yes. of the mask. Uh, and K&B makes several. Um, and none of them work. Yes. Uh, and then ultimately, they track it down to a company called um, Fun World. Yep. Uh, who had made it as part of their... Uh, uh, their Halloween series in like 1991 or 1992. It's called The Peanut-Eyed Ghost and was created by Brigitte Slayston? I think it's Slayston. And everybody loved it and they bought it and they, uh, they designed a whole ghostly look for the ghost-faced killer. Um, who was not actually named Ghostface at this point. Uh, the name Ghostface is actually created by Fun World to rebrand Peanut-Eyed Ghost <laughs> before this movie comes out. They're like, oh, we can't be selling something called Peanut-Eyed Ghost that was in a movie. Particularly when there's a movie where one of the female characters calls him Ghostface. Right. So let's just call him Ghostface. Um, but yeah, almost, almost just left that as peanut-eyed ghost. Uh, and Bob Weinstein fucking hates the mask. So he goes to K&B and is like, I want different variations of this mask. This one looks stupid. Make me a good one. And, uh, and Wes is like, no, this is what I want to shoot with. What I want to make. I just need you to make it so that it's flexible, not... Not a character mask for a Halloween costume. Right. I need Hollywood workable. Right. And um, and Bob Weinstein's like, no, I'm not approving that mask. What I want you to do is I want you to shoot a scene with each of these variations that I've contracted K&B to make. And, and Wes is like, all right, I'm game. I will shoot these sequence. I will shoot sequences with this other mask, and I will send you the dailies. And if you're not convinced by the time I'm done shooting this sequence with Drew Barrymore, I'll eat my hat and we'll pick whichever one you like best and we'll reshoot. And Bob's like, "Fine, I'll refund. I'll fund reshoots if we have to." So, K and B makes these variations. 
And, you know, there are shorter versions of the mask, there are longer versions of the mask, and Wes shoots with exactly one of them. The one that looks closest to the original? No. Oh, okay. The one that looks the least like the original. Okay. Um, and if you're watching, uh, if you watch the original uh, sequence, you'll see that there are two, there's a long mask, and there's a short mask that we see in a couple of close-ups where the mask just looks a little a little too short. That's the one that can be made. Okay. And Wes was like, all right, I shot all of this with a mask made by K&B, and I shot these insert scenes with a mask made by K&B. Which one do you like more? And Bob was like, oh, I like, the, I like this one that, that's in the... The, the most of the scene. He's like, yes, that's the that's the one K and B copy. That's the original recast <laughs> in flexible latex. The one that I want. The one that I wanted from the beginning. Um and Bob was like, well I asked you to shoot with all seven. He's like, I shot with the one that looked good and I shot with this other one that you asked for. And Bob never said another fucking word about the mask. <laughs> the, in- the interesting thing about this, another controversy at the exact same time, because this is this was for the uh, the Casey scenes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, this is the point where they were ready to fire Wes. Yep. For other reasons, they were yes. seeing the dailies outside of the mask and going, um, "This is not the direction we want to take this movie. What are you doing? What is this long?" phone conversation why why what is going on with drew barrymore this doesn't make sense um you you're gonna get fired dude uh so wes is like let me just cut everything together and show you what we're working with Mm -hmm. okay and And then if you want to fire me you can fire fire me which i think is probably why he also staked the mask thing on this cut of footage yeah he was like if you're going to fire me already because you don't like the direction of the movie, yeah, what does it fucking matter? So, if you don't like the mask I picked. So he, he cuts together a, a, a rough cut of what is the first 13 minutes of the movie. and He cuts together a rough cut of the first 13 minutes of the movie that almost doesn't fucking change until the movie hits the MPAA. Yeah. Like, it's such a tight 13 minutes that Miramax is like, no, lock that. That's perfect because it instantly wins Miramax execs over. They yes. see this sequence and they're like, oh, oh God, that's the movie you're making? Well, you can't see... I'm so sorry. You can't tell that from the dailies. <laughs> well, of course you can't tell it from the dailies. It's not an assembly. And then they don't bother Wes again on shooting stuff. Yep. Until the end of the movie. Which... Another controversy. At the end of the movie, there's an entire day of blurry dailies. <laughs> yes. That DP gets fired. Yeah, but that's that's not really Miramax hounding Wes. No, that no, it is Miramax hounding Wes by going, We just developed these dailies. What the fuck just happened? Fire your camera department. And Wes is like, I don't want to fire my whole camera department, but I will if I have to. Yeah. Hey, Fire the camera department. Well, if you fire them, you have to fire me too. Okay, bye. Sorry. <laughs> you gotta go. Yeah. Uh, you just wasted a shitload of Miramax's money. 
on, on my movie. On, on what, scene 118? Scene 118, the longest scene in history. history. Uh, 21 consecutive shooting days That's for scene 118. Uh, scene 118 is, is for, for those of you who've never heard of it before, scene 118 is the party sequence. Uh, uh, when they get to Stumacher's house until the end of the movie... In the script is just called party scene, um, and it's scene one eighteen because they have to keep going back to this house to shoot, uh, and they shoot there for twenty twenty one straight nights, nice. not days, nights, um, and at the end the cast and crew is given, uh, you know, t shirts say I survived scene one eighteen. Yes, um, they call it the longest night in horror history. Like there, there are movies, entire horror movies that shoot in twenty-one nights. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, Santa Rosa County School. I'm going through my. We bounced around, but we covered all the same stuff. Your notes and my notes were mostly the same. Um, oh yes, um, the big controversy though will come once the movie is shot and is submitted to the MPA. Uh, well, there's there's a couple of interesting things along the way, uh, from script to this. Uh, Kevin once cut a lot of the violence mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff that Wes ended up putting back in. Oh yeah, like the script it was excised, and Wes is like, "We need this, and we need this, and we need this," and Kevin's like, "But that's that's what I would." But I cut that. That's what I was told to cut. Uh, and and Wes was like, "No, no, no." No, no, no. That's important. And Wes, who passed on this movie because it was too violent, which is... And then uh, one, of the, one of the brilliant scenes in the movie, uh, Kevin was like, this doesn't work. I'm going to cut it. It's horrible. And then Wes was like, no, this scene stays in. This scene is important. It shows Sydney's relationship with her mother, and we have a scary, nonviolent kill that we don't know what's happening. In the bathroom scene. Mm-hmm. Like Kevin's like, that's stupid. It's got to go. And Wes was like, don't don't mess with my movie. Yeah, don't don't uh uh-uh. uh no no no, don't don't touch this. This has to stay. Um, but the 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 final cut of the movie is submitted to the MPAA, and it 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 comes back with a lot of notes, and it gets edited and it goes back and it comes back with a lot of notes, and this process passes seventeen. Times. Um, trim this this one second piece of footage here. This this two seconds here. This here, and it just goes back and fucking forth. It's 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 not that it's too much blood. It's not that it's that it's a specific shot, Wes. Wes, it's it's just too intense. Yeah, too intense. But how do you cut for intensity? Um, you fight. You fight and you fight for for 17 rounds. Yes. With the fucking MPAA. And what you get is multiple different cuts of this movie. Uh, which becomes uh, almost, you know, infamous for home video. Because the home video release... <laughs> each puts home back video each, each home video release is a slightly different cut of the movie um, and, and restores things like 
Like the NPA, like the guts spilling out of Steve Orth. Uh, you can you can keep the bloody mess, but we cannot see any organs falling down his leg. Yep, 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 yep. And then, <laughs> then you do in the video. The yes, indeed. Video. Um, yeah, and uh, that that ends up being an interesting sort of <sighs> cottage industry where people are actually trying to find. The version of Scream they like best. Yes. Um, on on home video. Now, now to answer your question of how, other than fighting, how do you cut for intensity? You do something unprecedented. You have the producing entity, the head of the studio, Dimension, Bob Weinstein, because Dimension's his. Yeah. He goes to the MPAA. Yep. And says, you guys are not getting this movie. You keep sending it back for cuts. You're focusing on the horror and the blood. Guys, this is a black comedy. That's why why it's funny. You know why it's funny, guys? Because it's a black comedy. And black comedies are intense. Yeah. And then, no more problems from the NPAA. Now, could it be that they heard the the black comedy argument and we're like you know what you're right or this is 1996 yep this is the MPAA two years after uh, after fighting a big long protracted battle with Miramax over a movie called Clerks um, which is you know almost exclusively about profanity. Yes. And and Miramax dragged the MPA's name through the fucking mud. Is it possible that the MPAA was like, "All right, we don't I don't want to gear up for another fight with the Weinsteins." I, I can't gear up for another that that's entirely possible. They could have bought that okay, it's a, it's a black sure, comedy. Sure. Or it's like, "God, you're right. Bob just showed up personally. That means uh, if we keep this up in 2 weeks, Harvey's going to show up." If we keep pushing this, once again, it's us versus the Weinsteins. And nobody ever wins against the Weinsteins. This was a different world, people. It was a very different world. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So they acquiesce. Um, they do say that their, their last round of cuts are still required. Yes. Uh, but no more. We, we'll no we'll more. give it a pass. It's an R-rated now, R rating now. Release your phone. So I can think of no other way to to, to to do this than to finally to talk about the movie. Yeah. Um, which I, I think is the, the sparsest uh, series of notes I've taken on any movie. Because, goddammit, I'm fairly certain I know this movie by... Heart. Uh, the first 13 minutes kind of plays like its own perfect short horror film. Yes, yes. Um, we, we we open on Casey Becker, and she's she's getting ready for her you know movie date. Her boyfriend's coming over. She's making some popcorn. They're gonna watch some videos. She rented a bunch of horror movies. She's got Halloween uh-huh. in the mix. Uh huh. Yeah, it's all it's all good. Uh huh. It's all good. And the phone rings. And we get that first taste of this voice on the other end of the phone. And he's just, he's kind of charming. And 
He seems sort of normal. And he just... I'm sorry. He's got I must the wrong have dialed the wrong, wrong number. number. You know, and it's just... It's this conversation that just builds in intensity. Builds well, in intensity. And he calls back. Why'd you dial it again? And it gets tenser and tenser. And she keeps hanging up on him and, and calls back. You hang up on me again, I'll gut you like a fish. Understand? And you're like, whoa, what just happened? What? What? What What just happened? Alright. This movie just changed gears. Very swiftly. Yes. And this voice, and that's sort of the interesting thing that you don't get in Scream 2. You don't get in Scream 3. You don't get the nuance to the phone calls from the killer. Because the killer just plays these melodic tones, draws you in, and then snaps on you. And it's, it's very engaging in this first movie. After that sort of trick is played for the first time on Casey and later in the movie on Sydney. we're always on ten with Ghostface. Ghostface never comes back down to zero. He just stays in that sort of evil range. Um, and that's sort of, you know, sort of unfair. <laughs> because uh, Roger Jackson, the actor who plays Ghostface, who is on set the whole time, and hidden from his castmates the whole time, calling on actual cell phones. And, uh, as has been stated by the producers and everything, was originally just going to be a placeholder yeah. to be dubbed in later by another actor. And then they started hearing the dailies. An actor who had not yet been cast. Yeah. Like, they were going to cast up. It was going to be a name. Yes. And then, no. No, we're going to... This guy's good. This guy's really good. Because his voice is generic. Yes. And normal. And then it's not. What's your favorite scary movie? I'd, I'd, I'd like to know who I'm looking at. I'd I mean, like I'd like to know, know who, who I'm, I'm talking, talking to. to. <laughs> uh, which is... Uh, uh, uh. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. Then you should know Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the original killer. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. You tricked me. And I just... Once he gets into that tone, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. And the menace that you get from Ghostface all comes from that voice. Because that mask is not very terrifying on its own. No. I mean, I know West thought it was, that it was, it was the right mask. But you see the ghost face. It didn't, it didn't scare me. Roger Jackson's voice, the menace of whoever was placing that call, scared me. And that's where the, the terror and scream comes from. Not from who's under that mask, but from who's on the other end of that phone. Um, and so he plays a little game with Casey. It's a, it's a 
horror movie quiz game, and at stake is the life of her boyfriend, Steve, who is it's tied up to a chair outside um, and will be gut, gutted like a fish if she gets a wrong answer. And she does. I, I gave it away. It yep. was the, the Friday the 13th question. And, uh, and meanwhile, the popcorn she was making is burning away, and, you know, Ghostface tries to break into the house to get her. She's trying to run away. There's a chase scene. Parents come home. So the parents who, you know, live right down the street from the McKenzie's. Uh, so apparently this, this is a nexus that connects Haddonfield to Woodsboro. <laughs> Um, well then, well we we've talked about this yes. in H two O. They she sends her to the Beckers. I know, which is right down the street, both set in Northern California. Well, in that one, it you know <laughs> you could actually argue, uh, except of course that they watch Scream Two Ooh. in the movie. Sorry. Um, uh, and oh, there's, there's this, this, there's this, this, there's this tenseness. Uh, there's blood tension. And, so much blood, so much gore. It's it's just like Wes just unleashed on this movie, and I'm I'm not even talking about the movie. I'm talking about this, just oh, this. Yeah, like the the blood coming off of Casey Becker, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, she gets stabbed during this chase, and she's got the phone, and her parents are home, and she she's choked out, and she can't she can't talk. And they pick up the phone and try to call the police, but. Casey's still on the line. They hear her dying, and they come outside to find her hanging from a tree. Yes. And there is this sort of masterful cut on audio that exists in two versions of the film. I don't know if it was in the theatrical, but it was not in my first VHS copy, but it was in my second, where there is this sort of creaking noise of, of typing on a, on, a, on a keyboard almost in perfect time with Casey's body twisting a little bit before the cut. Yeah. So it almost sounds like a rope. Like, ugh. Yes. Brilliant sound design. Um, and, and we get an introduction to our, our actual hero, our heroine, um, in, the, in the personage of Sidney Prescott, who is writing a paper when her boyfriend just pops through a window. Uh, looking all like fucking Johnny Depp, because um, he does. He looks like he looks like Johnny Depp. And Johnny Depp pops through the window in a yeah. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and he, you know, he was home watching a movie. It was edited for TV. He decided he'd hop over and you know talk about sex stuff with his girlfriend. And you know uh, they get interrupted because her dad pops into the room because he thought he heard somebody. Because he heard somebody. Because he heard somebody. It's very, hot. it's very real teenager here. Yeah. In many ways, I feel like, aside from the fact that they are perfect looking, these are the. This is the moment, we, where we reach peak reality teenager. Yeah. The moments before it, we were almost there in those movies. The moments after it, we went too far. Yeah. Scream was the moment where we clicked, where reality and and the movies collided. And this was a representation of real 1996 children, teenagers. I was one. I know. I remember these people. I, they didn't look like 
Nev Campbell. But they were close. I remember these people. They were all my little yeah. brother's age. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I knew a bunch of people who were teenagers at the time. I was not. I was 21. Right. I was in college. I had. I have a slightly different experience watching it. Right. Because it doesn't necessarily rec- represent your high school life. No, it doesn't. It does, mine. This is what high school looked like for me. I mean, if you want to recognize what high school looked like for me, uh, go watch Dr. Giggles. Or Saved by the Bell. Or definitely Saved by the Bell. <laughs> I was trying to keep it within the horror genre. But yeah, go watch Saved by the Bell. It's, it's Saved by the Bell is totally horror. Stop! I mean, I mean, if you... Belding and Screech aren't horror characters? Well, I'll... I'll, I, think I'll I think there's something wrong with you. I'll give you Screech. Alright. Um, so, so Billy and, and, and Sydney talk around the fact that it's been a year... Since Sydney's mom died, and there's this nebulous stuff, and you know she's sorry because she's a little, you know, preoccupied. I uh, um, I, I like to call this exposition less exposition. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, it also it and it sets up the fact that Sydney's dad is going away on a business trip. Yep. Um, so Sydney's going to be alone. Ooh, uh, right as all cameras. of this, yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Um, except, no, not not at Sydney's. It's uh, a shame, because that house is built for a kegger. <laughs> and so is the other house. Well, yeah. Um, so then the next day at school, there's this massive media circus. Uh, you know, uh, news trucks everywhere. Kids are getting interviewed uh, because the two of their classmates are dead. Uh, it has the, the the coming into the established thing with the interviews has one of my favorite Wes Craven shots out of the entirety oeuvre of Wes Craven. Yeah. When it's the high crane that comes down, and then suddenly you know it's a crane shot. You're watching it, and then suddenly it's not a crane shot, and the camera's moving. Because what he did is he had a steady cam operator standing on the crane, and when the crane came down to ground level, just continued the shot. Moving off of the crane, it's. I cannot describe how beautiful this shot is. Like it is literally yeah. one of my. It's in my top five Wes Craven shots of all time. We very quickly gonna kind of introduce the the world around Sydney has been kind of tilted off its axis, but we get through backstory the notion that this is the second time this has happened. Yes, this is exactly what happened a year ago, when. Sydney's mom got fucking splatter movie killed. Um, as the, to uh, to coin a a a, a Tatum Riley phrase, um, and everybody at the school has their turn being interviewed to see whether or not they know anything. Um, this is where we first meet uh, the 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 sheriff, and we meet Principal Hembry, and. Deputy Dewey Riley. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, Next on. movie. Um, the sheriff here is uh, Joseph Whip. Who, uh, Whip, uh, who, if you watched A Nightmare on Elm Street, was just a deputy then. Yep. But now he's a sheriff. He, he moved up in the world. He left Springwood and moved to Woodsboro. I gotta get away from this crazy Springwood slasher. <laughs> Oh, God, it's starting again. Oh, that would be such an amazing movie, dude. 
Like if if you were just to connect the two somehow, I would fucking love that. Um, and the principal is is it's fucking the Fonz, man. It's Henry Winkler. Yes, uh, Principal Henry. Henry Winkler, who went uncredited, yeah. so as to not rob attention from the young class uh, cast. Henry Winkler is like the most giving actor on the planet, is what people will tell you. Yes, he's just like, like he'll write you letters, like, "Hey, I saw you in this. I thought you were amazing. Keep up the good work." Like he's just everybody's like Jewish uncle, I really, and he's incredibly nice. I really wish I had gotten a chance to talk to him. Uh, when I was at a convention with him last May. That would have been super cool. Um, and then we get the kids off campus together, yes. sitting around a fountain, talking about the kind of questions they got uh, from the police. And, and they are as reverent to the questions they were asked as you can expect 16 and 17-year-olds to be. And by that I mean they are fucking not. Yeah. Did you really leave her liver in the mailbox? I heard you left her liver in the mailbox next to her spleen and her pancreas. They ask you if you if you hunt, if you like to hunt? hunt. They ask me if I like to. They ask me if I like to hunt. Liver alone. Mm. Live, live. It was a joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like these kids are, they're kids. Because I, you believe them. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't ask you if you because a woman couldn't do this. It takes like a man's mentality to do that. Hello, basic instinct. <laughs> like Tatum is fighting that, yeah, a chick could have done this. We've sure. seen the movie, Basic Instinct, where the killer is the woman. And there is no set of kids more movie literate than yeah. these kids. They talk in movies, which is they brilliant. Uh, I talk in movies. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's at this moment that it's just... a. It's an inch away from being a little too twee. Yeah. You know, when Dawson does it, it's too much. Yes. When, uh, when, the, when the kids in uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer do it, it's, it's too much. Scream? It's perfect. Um, so Sydney doesn't want to stay by herself, given everything that's going on. Uh, so she's going to go and stay over at her friend Tatum's. Tatum has to work. So, she, so Tatum's going to pick her up after work. Uh, so Sydney goes to her incredibly large house, packs up her shit, and takes a nap on the couch. Like like you do. Yeah, you know, I, I've often fallen around on the couch asleep waiting for my friends to come pick me up. Sure. Um, and while she waits, the sun sets, and uh, she gets woken up by a phone call. Tatum totally apologizes for being late. She's going to swing by the uh, video store because it's all about movies, folks, yep. and pick up all the right moves. Because if you pause it right, you can see Tom Cruise's you-know-what. Yep. Uh, but then the phone rings again. Sydney thinks it's Tatum. Just, just skip the movie, Tatum. Come and get me. Weird night with all the killings and everything. It's like something out of a horror movie. Oh, Randy. Uh, tell Tatum when she gets there. You know, yeah. he, it's Randy. It's got to be Randy. I like that sexy thing you're doing with your voice, Randy. And if this was Scream 4, he'd be like, I'm not fucking Randy. But it's not. It's Scream. It's Scream. So he's going to play with her a little bit. Um, and we get the, you know, that moment in the trope, you know, where she recognizes what's going on and then does it anyways. Yeah. 
She calls it out. She goes outside to investigate a strange noise or something. Um, she explains why she doesn't like scary movies. Yep. And then she does, instead of going out the front door, runs up the stairs. Um, and Ghostface makes his, his presence known in full. Not in these, you know, quarter shots and, and, and quick glimpses. We see the full costume chasing Sydney through her own house into her room where we establish in the beginning that she kind of props her, uh, her closet door to, to block her, her, her door door. To lock it into place so it, it into won't place. open any further. And then she uses her computer to call 911, which, okay, sure. Um, nobody would have done that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anybody who would do that. Well, see, the thing that I've never, <laughs> I've never understood uh, is on the... It's deaf type. It's deaf type. Uh, why does she have it? <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Um, it's never established. Um, so, yeah. Before Ghost, I mean, Ghostface is trying to bust through the door. Ghostface doesn't bust through the door. Um, uh, but before anything else can happen, Billy comes through the window. Billy through the window, and everything he's holding his girlfriend, and everything's fine. And then he drops a cell phone. I drops a what? A cell phone. Those things are like magic, and they cost thousands of dollars. It's nineteen ninety six. It's expensive as fuck, and. Sydney immediately recognizes that, oh my god, this, this guy called me. Billy could be the killer and runs down the stairs, down to the front door, opens the front door, and there's the ghost face staring at her. It's, it's a mask in the hands of Deputy Dewey Riley, who screams bloody murder when he, when, as soon as she screams. Which, I love Dewey. Dewey. Dewey is the... Dewey's the heart and fucking soul of this movie. Dewey's what... Franchise. Yes. Okay? Not just this one. All four of them. Without Dewey, there's no screams. It's Deputy Dewey. Um, so, they arrest Billy. Um, and a reporter arrives just in time to see Billy Loomis getting taken away and Sydney getting loaded into, uh, into Dewey's car. Um... And she, she, she's really upset, this, this reporter, Gail Weathers, uh, because her cameraman, Kenny, is a little slow. And by, by slow, we mean, like, like slow. Like, he, he is not fast in his movement. And I, you know, he, I don't think she also understands the realism of putting a 50-pound camera on your shoulder and running. Talent doesn't, ever. Sure. Um, and this, this is our introduction to Gail Weathers. Um, my name's not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, the camera, hurry. My name isn't Jesus. Love it. Um, and Kenny, the cameraman is just, I love W. Earl Brown. I've always loved W. Earl Brown, but this movie is like the height of his career, in my opinion. Um, we then cut to the police station they they've found this mask. They they know what it is. They know where to get it. Um, Billy is in with the sheriff and his dad. Um, Sid is sitting sitting at Dewey's desk. Billy gets you know you know why do you why why do you have a mo what were you doing with a mobile phone? What about what about last night? I hear you, 
She's Sydney says you strolled by her place last night. You went too. out. You went out last night. It's it's just it's the dialogue is tight in this the movie. Di- the dialogue is tight. Also, uh, as I lived through ni- the nineties and I saw this through a bunch, there is disaffected parentage. Yeah. Well, when we call Vital Phone Comp, they got the rep- record of every number dialed. Thanks, Hank. We're, We're on, on top, top of, of it. it. The sad thing is, I could just quote the whole fucking movie, it's, and people would be so bored. Um, so they they put Billy in lockup, and the sheriff tells Dewey to get Tatum and Sid out of there. Uh, so they go out the back door, but Gail, with her investigative instincts, yes, assumes that they might be going out the back door. Gets down there. Before Dewey can get back with the car to load Sid and, and Tatum up, Gail finds, uh, finds Sidney. And uh, my note is simply, bam, bitch went down. Bam, bitch went down. Because Sidney, after a, a slight little bit of prov- provocation, just flat out decks Gail Weathers. Gail Weathers, who is the reporter who has most profited off of the death of Maureen Prescott, Sydney's mother. Yeah. Um, they go back to the Riley house. There's there's a girl bonding moment. Bam, bitch went down. Bam, Sid, super bitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a moment there where I, I fell hopelessly, endlessly in love with Rose McGowan. It's it's the bunny. It's the bunny. And she plays with the bunny's feet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's adorable. Uh, and then the phone rings. It's for Sid. And it's, once again, the Ghostface Killer. Who, uh... An innocent guy doesn't stand a chance with you. I'm not quite sure what that means. As a viewer, I was like, I'm not quite sure what that means. And then... Then we have the moment where Dewey won't come out of his room, he's running behind, he gets to the phone, and he, he picks it up, and you have this weird sort of Sinister, possibly sexy. Hello. So maybe Dewey's working with the killer. Or uh, spoiler alert: I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go down this road of maybe Dewey's the killer. Dewey's not the fucking killer. Um, but they, they <laughs> sure do go uh, miles towards they point really, fingers. At they him. really, really do. Uh, in the morning, the news reports are talking about Maureen Prescott and the person who was put away for it, a guy named Cotton Weary. And then we start getting the intimations based on the innocent guy doesn't stand a chance with you and the news report that maybe, just maybe, Cotton Weary didn't kill Sydney's mother because Sydney was the only one who saw anything and she was the eyewitness that got him put away. And she starts to doubt it herself. She goes to talk to Gail about it. Gail doesn't want to talk because Gail got punched the night night before. before. Nice welt, sweetie. Um... That's, that's that's Tatum. That's that's the note. I just wrote nice welts, sweetie. I just basically just wrote quotes. Um, so Gail thinks that Sydney's you know doubting herself, and you know she might be able to get Cotton Weary off death row. Well, has Cotton's story changed? Not no. one word. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and an innocent guy on death row. Do you have any idea what that could do to my book sales? 
Like, she's not a good person. No, she's not. Um, she's, in fact, a terrible fucking person. She's a terrible person. <laughs> but she's believable terrible she's, in she, this movie. She's, she, you know, she's good with the demographic of males, 18 to 24. I'm 25. I was 24 for a whole year. Um, <laughs> Jesus. All right, I, I can't just keep quoting the movie. Uh, um, so she goes into the, they have the school thing. She goes into the school and people are running food. around dressed like Ghostface. Yes. Note is it's like Christmas. Um, <laughs> Stupidity week. Billy has been released from jail, runs into Sydney, and they have this moment where Billy's just kind of like, get over it. It's been a year. God damn it. When my mom left. <laughs> when my mom left, I got over it. That's how the cookie crumbles. No, that's that, that screams. That's stab. That's stab. That's stab. Um, if you don't know any of the shit we're talking about, I'm sorry. Go watch these movies and come back. Um, we'll be waiting for you. Yeah. Um, I didn't do that. I was in jail. Remember? Remember? Look, <laughs> at, my, look at my fingers with the fingerprinting stuff on it. Uh, I couldn't have called you. Right. And then uh, Sydney goes into the uh, bathroom where the cheerleader and her friend are having the conversation about Sydney. Yes. Um, you know, which is the most black comedy straight out of Heather's moment in this movie. Yes. Uh, they leave, and then we reveal that Ghostface was in the bathroom the whole time and attacks Sydney. Um, and then we have the moment that I think is my. My favorite over-the-top moment in a man's career. Sensible shit. Two of your classmates were just brutally butchered. And he is... It's, it's just this amazing Principal Henry moment where... where <laughs> he's just using these scissors to just threaten these children and cutting up the mask and, like, Almost stabbing these teenagers before expelling them. I still, I love it. It's it's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah. Uh, Dewey shows up because they're about to announce the the curfew and that yeah. school is ending. Gale and Dewey flirt. Boom, 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 boom. Yes. Um, and uh, as everybody's leaving the school, Stu. Stu's having a party. And and it's going to be intimate gathering, intimate friends. This vixen doesn't invite the whole world. You know, it'll be fine. Yeah. Bring snacks, all right? Yeah. Um, so Stu sends his girlfriend and his girlfriend's best friend to go get snacks for a party. It's no big deal. Um, Principal Hembry... Trying on the mask, because why wouldn't you? Um, and the only person in the school other than him is Fred the janitor, uh, <laughs> who is who is Wes Craven dressed like Freddy Krueger. Uh, and then suddenly he is killed. Yes, uh, stabbed repeatedly by Ghostface. Then we have sort of the the the, the big backstory sequence, where we have. Tatum and Sydney talking about everything. Yeah. Which leads to the shopping sequence, which leads to your favorite visual joke in this movie. 
my favorite visual <laughs> joke in this movie. Everyone's favorite visual reference that didn't happen. Ben. But you expect that it will. Because Sheriff Burke is smoking because the stress. Stress. I thought you quit. And Dewey's eating ice cream. And every time the sheriff takes a drag of his cigarette, Dewey takes a bite of his ice cream. (laughs) Like, it's just so perfectly timed. And then the sheriff tosses his cigarette, and the expectation is just, Dewey's going to drop that ice cream. And then he doesn't. There's an outtake where he did. Oh. It's on. I've seen the outtakes. It's 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 there. It's fucking great. Ah, oh. oh. but yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yes. Um, and meanwhile, the girls are shopping, and apparently Ghostface is wandering around a grocery <laughs> store, and nobody's it. catching it. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. That that's that's the moment. Where, this is the one of the few moments where it's like. All right, you've now strained credibility. And then we have the video store sequence. Where we establish that Randy is off the rails. Um, and we have, you know, Randy's sort of description of what, what, what the problem here is. That if the cops just watched prom night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it. Very simple formula. formula. But this is a suspect. Um, and you have you know sort of this moment where you can see that Billy and Stu are actually a pretty good team, yeah, um, and are and are surprisingly threatening, like very much more intimidating than you expected. Like when I look at Jamie Kennedy and Skeet Ulrich. I don't really think Jamie Kennedy is going to be intimidated by Skeet Ulrich. No. But he is. Because um, Billy, Billy's kind of you know, intimidating. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder why he is. Um, and then it's party time. Party, party time! time. Um, Excellent. <laughs> world. Swain's world. Dewey gives his sister and, and uh Sydney a, a ride to the party at Stu's house, which is way out in the middle of fucking nowhere, and he's just gonna stay there and hang out. He's gonna park up front. Um, they bring the snacks. Everything's good. Uh, <coughs> uh, Dewey invites Gail to go inside and check out the party with him because Gail has showed up with her news van. Kenny, the cameraman, has rigged up a remote camera that she can set up. So she agrees to go in with Dewey. She drops the camera, sets it up. There's a 30-second delay. Um, Then Dewey shows up again to invite Gail to go with him to investigate. There's a car went off the road somewhere around here. It's a nice night. He's got a flashlight. Why not go with him? It's cute. It's sweet. Yeah. Um, Kenny, the cameraman, just keeps monitoring while Gail goes off for a long walk with Dewey that, you know, they disappear for a little bit. Tatum goes to get a beer for for her boyfriend and a couple others and runs into the ghost face uh, and gets killed in the garage uh, by getting her head squished as she tries to escape the garage going through the cat door. Um, there's an interesting thing that happens while this is happening. Is we, we, we also come to realize that Ghostface 
is not like your 80 slasher icons. Yeah. He's not a Michael. He's, oh, no. He's not a, he's not a Jason. He's not a Freddy. Tatum fights back. She starts throwing beer bottles at him. She knocks him down. Yeah. Uh, you know, she... there, there's a very human aspect to very, Ghostface. Very human aspect to Ghostface. Uh, but Tatum does get her head squished, and almost immediately after, Billy shows up at the party. Fascinating. Why would Billy just? He's got good timing, that Billy. He's always showing up after shit happens. Uh, Billy and Sydney go up to the bed to the, one of the bedrooms to talk. Randy describes the rules of the horror movie. Yep. The rules. Remember, folks, back to the beginning of the podcast when I told you I was researching these things? Man. Fuck you, Kevin Williams. <laughs> Don't you know the rules? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror I movie. You have an aneurysm, why don't you? <laughs> um, and I'm not going to recite the rules, yeah. but everybody's seen this sequence. Um, and and it's, it's important to note that this is sort of where the the Halloween spark hits with me because this last act of the movie is set to Halloween. Yes. They're watching John Carpenter's Halloween and it has almost replaced the soundtrack. Marco Beltrami's music takes a back seat at times to John Carpenter's score. Yep. Uh, on sequences that happen in the house. Um, Randy gets a phone call uh, they found Principal Hembry. He's dead. He's hanging from the goalpost at the high school. Ghostface likes hanging people, too. Uh, and everybody leaves the party except Randy, who is, uh, is not giving up on watching his horror movies. No. He, he's also way too drunk to drive, so yes. it's probably for the best. Some of the other folks are, too, but that doesn't stop them. No, but, but Randy's sensical. You know, he, he knows things that'll get you killed uh, in a horror movie and apparently in real life. What I, what I, really, what I really like about this whole thing is uh, Bob Weinstein mm-hmm. looked at the script and said, I don't know what's going on in this movie, boys, but uh, we ain't had a kill in a while. Yep. So Kevin Williamson put in the Hembry kill, which then he's like... Oh my God, that solves my solution on how I get everybody away from the party. Yep. Thank you, Bob Weinstein. Yep. Um, and in their fleeing of the party, these cars drive Dewey and Gale off the road. Yep. They have their first kiss, but they also find Neil Prescott's car wrecked in the woods. Um. Billy and, and Sid have their conversation about, you know, their life. They have sex for the first time. And then Ghostface shows up and kills Billy and chases Sid. Sid escapes uh, through the, uh, the attic window, drops down into a boat, finds her best friend dead. Yeah. Um, Come alive, Rachel. Come alive. Oh, wait, wrong movie. And then, then uh, Randy's watching Halloween, and he's really invested in telling Jamie to turn around <laughs> behind you, Jamie. Um, it's which is so meta so in a meta movie. As Ghostface is coming up behind Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy, 
Jamie Kennedy is telling Jamie Lee Curtis to turn around because Michael Myers is behind her. It's fucking genius. It's so well constructed. Um, Sydney makes it to the van where Kenny is. Kenny is seeing Ghostface behind Randy. So this meta thing now gets an extra layer to it. Yeah. Um, and Kenny goes to step outside to see what's going on, and then he remembers, fuck, 30-second delay, and gets his throat slashed by Ghostface. Yeah. Um, Sydney escapes through the back of the van and goes running off. Um, Dewey and Gale get back to the house. They split up. Uh, Dewey goes inside. Gale goes to the van to call the cops. Uh, where she discovers that her windshield is coated in fucking blood. So much blood. So much blood. Um, and and we don't we don't see Dewey again. He's he's clearing the room with his gun, and then we don't see him. Um, Randy shows up at the the window of of Gail's car and gets hit several times with the phone uh, that she then drops. Uh. Phones were substantial things yes. uh, in the past, folks. So this was definitely a Zach Morris phone. It yes. is a, a big motherfucker. Um, and she puts the van in gear and starts driving away because she is scared. Um, and the problem is that she almost uh, hits Sidney Prescott uh, and Kenny falls down off the top of the van uh, and is sliding toward her. It, 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 there's this massive accident. The van goes flipping down on a, down a, a hill to the exact same music as I already stated in our previous deep dive podcast on the Halloween franchise. To the same music that the van carrying Michael Myers and Laurie Strode in Halloween H2O did. It appeared in this movie first and then was copied in that movie. Same scene, same music. Um, with the brilliant line... Kenny, I'm sorry, get off my fucking windshield, which I love. I love. Which is my note, get off my fucking windshield. Um, Sydney makes it back to the house just in time to see Dewey step out of the front door and get stabbed in the back. And then have the knife ripped out of his back by Ghostface. She gets in the car and locks the door, but she doesn't have the keys to start the car to drive away. Ghostface has the keys, which is just this brilliant shot where he just taps on the glass with his knife and then dangles the keys. It's like, oh fuck, that's that's smart. That's 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 smart writing. And then and then he drops down out of camera frame, uh-huh. and she's got the doors locked. Yes, and like a door unlocks, and she goes to relock it, and the other door unlocks, and she goes to relock it, and this goes on, and then as you're watching, it's a front on. It's a it's a Jeep SUV, mm-hmm. uh, two door, t- and you watch the back lift, the, the back lift off of the the, the back in the SUV. Yeah. The yep, the and, the hatch slowly rises. And it's like oh fuck, turn around, Sydney, turn around, Sid, 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 turn around. Uh, and then Ghostface comes in, and you know they have a little bit of struggle. She gets out of the car, runs around, grabs Dewey's gun to turn around, and and then Ghostface is gone. Where, where'd Ghostface go? And Randy comes running up out of nowhere. And Stu comes running up out of nowhere. That's right, Stu was in this movie too, Stu folks. is still in this movie, folks. And Stu is saying that Randy 
went crazy and killed Tatum. And Randy is saying that Stu has gone crazy. Randy's covered in blood. Stu is not covered in blood. Yeah. Uh, and and Sydney makes the, the smart choice. Says, fuck you both. And locks the front door. Uh, yeah. So Sydney's in the house by herself. Maybe there's a ghost face in there. Oh, wait, no, there's a Billy. He's alive. He survived the stabbing. He survived the stabbing. He's okay. He's like a stuck pig, but he's okay. Um, Randy's pounding on the door. Billy takes the gun from Sydney so that he can protect her. Opens yeah. the door. Randy comes in. He closes the door, locks it again. And then uh, Randy's like, Stu flipped out. He's gone mad. We all go a little mad sometimes. And then and then Billy shoots Randy in the chest. In the shoulder, really. Anthony Perkins. Psycho. Psycho. The, the, I, I gotta, is that a reference? Oh my, it is. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta throw an antidote in here. Uh, I went to see it the first time, five days after it opened, Christmas night, with my best friend. And the scene when Billy comes down, covered in the blood, I turn to my best friend and I go... That's fake blood. Mm-hmm. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, the rest of the blood of the movie, it's all fake, but that's fake, fake blood. Right. I mean, they call it out specifically with the, why do they do that? It's too red. Yeah. It's to get your mind to, to kind of skip over that beat so you miss it. Yeah. But it specifically hangs a lantern on it. Yes. I, I, I missed it when he is stabbed right. the first time. Yes. But, uh, but as soon as he came down the stairs, I'm like, he's the killer. <laughs> <coughs> totally. Um, and then we have, we have now this prolonged reveal that Billy and Stu are the killers. And they planned this whole thing. And they started a year ago by killing Sydney's mom. Because she was sleeping with Billy's dad. And that's the reason that his mom moved out and abandoned him. He has a legit motive. We're, you know, after a couple seconds earlier saying, it's better when there's no motive, he then gives one. Um, Stu, on the other hand, is just a fucking psycho. Yes, no. uh, <laughs> um, from what I understand, Kevin went back and forth and uh, went back and forth with himself and Bob about it. Yeah. About, uh, is, is no motive scarier or is direct motive scarier? Yes. Uh, so if the end result is I'm oh. going to have one guy have a motive and one guy Maybe not. Yeah. And said, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Um, and you get this sort of, you know, this is, this is the thing that Wes was like, this is, this is my, this is why, I, why I will do this movie. Cause this is a statement about, violence in movies and what violence in movies can do and what it really cannot do. Yeah. Um, and that was the point. That's why he took this movie was not just because Drew Barrymore was in it, but because he looked at it a second time and saw this sequence and was like, this is, this is it. This is, this is the message. After making The Hills Have Eyes, after making A Nightmare on Elm Street, this is the thing I need to say. Uh, this is also one of the big sticking points with the MPAA. Oh, yeah. They did not like the idea of the killers stabbing themselves it's, to yeah. set themselves up as the heroes. Yes. 
and and it's rough. Um, and in the middle of this sort of torturous reveal, Gail shows up with a gun. And, you know, she, she's going to save the day. Uh, except she forgot to take the safety off the gun. And, and, and Billy... He knows this. Billy is aware of this and kicks her, knocks her down, takes the gun from her, and is about to shoot her. Uh, when Stu recognizes that Sydney is no longer in the kitchen. Houston, we, we, we have, have a problem, problem here. here. Um, so they start tearing the house apart. They've stabbed each other to try to make themselves, well, well, Billy got stabbed once. Stu got stabbed a lot and is slowly bleeding to death. Um... So Stu keeps uh, Sydney on because Sydney calls as Ghostface. Yes. Um, to try to buy some time, um, fuck with these guys after having called the police. Uh, so Billy has to keep her on the phone so he can tear the house apart looking for her. Um, th- th- some of the best Stu moments are in this tiny little window of like two minutes. Yes. Uh, there's a scene where the. The fake blood is so slippery that he can't hang on to the phone. Um, so uh, there's a scene where Billy takes the phone, yells it at, at Sydney, and just tosses it back. But but Matthew Lillard as Stu cannot catch it, so it smacks him, uh, and and he just improvs. You fucking hit me with the phone, dick. Which is what you say when your best friend hits you in the face with a phone. Yeah. Um, you get uh, his, his his response to uh, the, the, the motive. Stu, the police Stu, are on Stu. their way. Billy's mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Uh, oh, so Billy's peer got pressure. I'm far peer too sensitive to peer pressure. pressure. I just, I love... He's so off the rails. Yes. Matthew Lillard is amazing in this movie. Um, and we get in time to the, the sequence of Michael Myers bashing open the closet to get to uh, Laurie Strode in Halloween. We get Billy opening up the closet where he thinks Sidney's hiding. He gets distracted for a second and looks at the TV. And Sidney Prescott, wearing the ghost face costume, pops out with a fucking umbrella and just stabs him in the chest with it. Yes. It's like, whoa! Boom! Uh, there, there's a look of intense pain yes. on, on Skeet's uh, face, yeah. on Billy's face when this happens. Uh, he was wearing a protective plate on his chest that he was supposed to get stabbed in. Uh, the, the metal point of the, of the umbrella missed. And hit him where uh, on a scar where he had had open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had open heart surgery. I have a scar, um, and it's very sensitive there. And if I get hit there, I can under completely understand the pain on that man's face. Yeah, totally. Um, but and they used that cut though because it is just it, yeah. It's it's, it's a hap- It's it's what's known as a happy accident, folks. Yeah. So after, you know, stabbing, running him through with this uh, umbrella, um, Stu hops in, suddenly, you know, strong and enraged. 
jumps on top of her. There's there's biting. There's punching. She knocks a TV on him, uh, it, a la you know uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three, um, and then you know Randy gets up, like everything's fine. Just in time to get punched out by Billy, who is also still alive. Um, who then gets shot by Gale in the shoulder and falls down seemingly dead. And then Randy's like, hold on, this is the moment when the supposedly dead killer pops up for one final scare. And Sydney's just like, no, fuck that. And just shoots him in the head. No, we're done. This, no, not, not my movie. Um, yeah, and we reveal that, oh, we reveal that Dewey's still alive. I just, I just love the music as we reveal that Dewey's alive and the movie's ending and the sun's coming up. Yeah. And, and Gail Weathers gets her big news moment, which is, you know, great for her. And the movie ends as the sun is rising in, in, this, in the, the, the hills of Northern California. And that is the end of Scream. Except there's a huge flash cut. And then the music starts. Um, so yeah, that's Scream. That is Scream. Um, I'm, I'm, I suspect I know the answers. Best kill. Casey Becker. Same here, Casey Becker. Um, that tense 12 minutes is the best part of the whole movie. Yep. Sets tone for the rest of the movie, sets tone for the rest of the franchise. It's a brilliantly cut together piece. Yeah, totally. It's, it's Casey Becker, hands down. Worst kill. There is no worst kill. There is a worst kill. There is. There is. Himbry's death is the worst kill. No, because there's that great shot that on his eye with the reflection and the knife. That's that's one shot out of a pretty badly staged kill. Don't care. It's I, awesome. I I know, but that's Henry Winkler's finest hour. His death scene is not. No worst kill. Team no worst kill over here. All right. I'll let you get away with not picking a worst kill for Scream. Um. So yeah, that's that's Scream. Um. Before we do final thoughts. Uh. You've been leading us through Financial Corner for five, for four franchises now. This is number five. Yeah. Um, before I, I, I talk about Financial Corner... Uh, Financial Corner, which is very fascinating with this movie. Because this uh, movie, whoa, these numbers is big, yo. Um, Compared with what we've been talking about. So, uh, however, <laughs> so it drops. Mm-hmm. And uh, Variety... Uh, in their article, their review when it drops, Variety says it's DOA. It's oh, dead yeah. on arrival. This movie is not going to make any money. Yeah, this movie's a, this movie's a failure. This is this is the last time ever that I think the teenage market is ignored. Yes. And uh, yeah. This, I mean, that's that's the impact of this movie that we'll talk about in a minute. No, right? nobody's going to see this movie. They have, they have made this horrible, uh, almost uh, deification of violence. Yeah, is, is the way the reviewers see it. Uh, uh, 
Roger Ebert likes it. <laughs> Gene Siskel does not. It, which is kind of amazing because Ebert and Siskel and Ebert together hated the 80s horror boom. Yes, yes. Um, we, we talked about the dead teenager movies in other podcasts. Yes. Um, now, they liked Halloween. Yes. They didn't like anything that came after. Not really, no. Um, but it's interesting that, that Roger at least recognizes that there's some of that sort of same artistic value from Halloween in this movie. Uh, he also likes that this movie is intelligently sending up the tropes right. that comprise the genre of which it is itself existing in. Yes. He saw the meta-ness. Yeah. He, he, he saw it for what it was. I also see how Gene Siskel didn't give a shit about meta. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting story about this movie. Um, it did not start off as the number one movie in America. It's a sleeper hit, as they call it. Uh, I can't think of other movies that have done this uh, in the last ten years. Yeah. Uh, and this movie's now 22 years old. Uh, it kept building. Most movies drop off the next weekend and so on. This, this movie's second weekend outperformed its first. Its third weekend outperformed its second. Uh, so it had a, a nice small budget like a, uh, we hit the $14 million. Its final domestic take is $103 million. Okay. Okay. Uh, it was and it was the number one slasher of all time until three weeks ago, when Halloween unseated it. Uh, but that's just that's just straight money, folks. Right. Uh, adjusted, uh, Scream still holds the number one slot. Well, um, what held the number one slot until Scream? Halloween. So Halloween was unseated by Scream. And then Halloween unseated Scream. Yes. It's fair. It's totally fair. Um, yeah. All right. And, whew. But, but, that, but that's adjusted. Right. Uh, and then Halloween just took it on it. Because adjusted to 2018 dollars, Scream is at $206 million. Jesus. Double its uh, domestic take. And it had even more uh, foreign, but we haven't talked about foreign markets before. No, we have not discussed foreign markets. We're not going to start now, even though Scream is a unique film. Um, so we, what we've got is we've got a franchise that comes along at just the right moment to point out to every media conglomerate in the world that there is a generation of underserved teenagers who are a huge, huge market you can be that can be tapped. We we've spent years hearing about Gen X, mm-hmm. and the last of the Gen Xers have moved out of the teenage bracket. Yes, and nobody's talking about what's behind them. No, and because they, media continues to service the Gen Xers, and they're like this. But that's what's important. We follow that market. It's cool, and Scream goes. Oh no, 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 no. You, if this was built for Gen X, Gen X didn't fucking see this movie. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's the next generation. It's those kids you're not making content for that come to see this fucking movie. In droves. This, this kind of reminds me 
of 16 years earlier mm -hmm. with Friday the 13th. Yep. And it drives a new boom, not just of horror movies, but of new content. Youth-oriented. Youth-oriented yeah. content. It births Buffy the Vampire Slayer on the WB. It births Dawson's Creek on the WB. I don't want to wait. It, it, it opens up a, 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 a different style of movie making that, that points toward a younger demographic. And it, it opens the door for the creation of the WB as the, the market force that it is when it goes away and merges with the UPN network and becomes the CW. There is no, there's no flash, there's no arrow, there's no, none of that. Without Scream. Yeah. Um, and I think in many ways without Scream, there's probably no MCU. There's no Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because the, the audiences that went to see Iron Man and Captain America and those movies that are now the cornerstone of Hollywood are 10 years out from Scream. Right. Because Scream's success led to... The, the green lighting of X-Men and Spider-Man, and that led the change. Scream literally changed the face of media, changed the world. And it changed my world. It introduced me to horror movies, which I would not have, would not have given two shits about. So, huge impact to this movie. I, I cannot think of another horror movie that had more impact, except maybe Halloween. Yeah. And even then, I think Scream had more impact. Yes. Culturally. So I think it's still the number one of all time. It's still the best. It's still the most important, except maybe, maybe Psycho. Like Psycho and Scream. Psycho, Halloween, Scream, they are the, they're the era-specific... They are the the lodestones. Lodestone, and I would like to say they are exemplative of the modern era. Mm -hmm. Modern era beginning in nineteen sixty, if you will. Yes, yes. Um, now the the thing that this kind of points toward is, I suspect that we're due for another. It's Halloween, twenty eighteen, the the David Gordon Green Halloween is not our cultural innovator of this moment. No. Something is. What will it be? It's usually a horror film. Was it The Purge? No. Was it The Nun? No. What's next? That's the thing to keep your eye on. Yeah. Because something is going to take the reins. It, it is already written. It is out there, and somebody else is trying to write it. It's in production. Somewhere. Somewhere. It's going to happen again. There's going to be a me out there who's taking notes and going, I'm changing it, I'm changing it, and it's going to go see the movie and be like, I'm too late. Mm -hmm. and, and oh, what it would mean to be the person who's, who's not too late. Yeah. Um, if you're working on this, best of luck. Um, because you could literally rewrite the face of media with a dumb little horror movie, just like Wes Craven did in 1996. Grab the zeitgeist, ride the lightning. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, those are my final thoughts on Scream, the epic 
that that changed the world. I it, I can't say enough about it, and we've already almost talked for two hours yep. about Scream. Um, yeah. What What are your final thoughts? Uh, I wouldn't be who I am today without this movie. I'm I'm not of the generation this movie was made for. Yeah. However, I am the last set of Gen Xer. Gen X. Yeah. Like as of now, Gen X ends in seventy five. Yep. I this movie wasn't made for me, but I am close enough uh, that people ten years older than me for them it's Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. This uh, this is my this is my moment. Uh, it came when I was twenty one. Uh, everything that Matthew said is is true. Everything you said, uh, it changed media. It changed how we looked at movies. Mm-hmm. It changed how we looked at horror movies. It changed how we. The look of this movie. Yeah. This movie looks like a goddamned movie, not like a crappy little horror movie. Yes. It it changed the way we 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 prioritized our spending in a horror movie. Um, it showed that horror movies were yes, they were bastions of artistry because frankly we've we've always allowed the camera to do more in genre films than we do in normal films. Yes. But it opened up the door to say the, the, the quality, the level of production value that goes into a big drama or comedy, that's where we need to be. We need to, we need to know, look like this. We and, need to look like a movie. And it did. I saw this movie seven times in the theater. I still regret that I never saw this one in the theater, um, coming to it too late. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, Scream 2 was a fucking experience. And if, if just a fraction of Scream 2 was like what seeing Scream was like, holy shit, I missed out. It was, it was, uh, I can't describe it. Scream, Scream 2 is an experience, but it is pale, pale pale imitation. Pale imitation, yeah. That's true across the fucking board. Um... All right, so we said a lot. We expressed a lot of love. This movie is still my favorite. Like, I love Halloween. I can always come back to Scream. Sometimes sometimes Halloween just kind of... Sometimes... Just washes over me. Yep. And sometimes it just... Meh. It just sits there. Because I know it so well. I can come to Scream and I can always get something. I can always, I can always go back to that well. So the only, the only thing that I wish I could do is scream all over again. See it for the first time. See it for the first time, because it was so much, it was so much fun with me and my best friend. Yeah, we're sitting there, we're watching it in the in an active horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, fan movies, so people are screaming and laughing at the points you're supposed to laugh, yep. and we're going back and forth. Who's the killer? Who do you think it is? I'm like, do you think it's just one? I think it might be three people. He's like, it's not going to be three. That's too many. There's no way it's going to be three. It's going to be one. I'm like, it might be two. It might be three. Yeah. He's like, I've got. He's like, what do you? I got one. I know. I know for sure one. And that it's, was so. Uh, that's yeah. beyond the movie itself. I. Uh, it's it's a fairly impenetrable mystery, even though it is painfully obvious. Yes. Um. But once you once you see it, you can't ever experience that part of it again. Yeah. And that's because, I mean, 
when Billy came down that stairs with that blood, you're like, okay, yeah, fuck you. Fuck you. I knew it. You're knew the killer. It, like, you're an asshole. But who stabbed you? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then when Stu comes out and you're like, holy shit. No, I liked him. Yeah. Changed the game. Just changed the game. Um, yeah. Love this movie. Still. Um, and if, if the success of Halloween leads to a fifth screen, I will go see it. I mean, I'll go see it. <laughs> Even if I think it's a bad idea. Yeah. Just like I thought Hate Teen was a bad idea yep. at first. I'll, I'll still go see Sidney Prescott go out on one last adventure. As long as it's a last adventure. Pulling for Gail Weathers to be the killer. Oh, it'll never happen. Gail Weathers can't be the killer. <laughs> we've, we've bellied up to that bar too many times. Uh, that said, however, I think we're at a good wrap point on yeah. Scream 1. Oh, totally. Um, but join us back here next time to talk about Scream 2. Scream and scream again. Join us next time for Scream and Scream Again <laughs> at the Gale Weathers Book Club. I'm Patrick J. Blanchard, your host, and I'm pleasure to roll us on out with my co-host, my brother, my friend, Matthew J. Blanchard. Thanks for joining us, folks, and we'll see you next week. Or hear you, or you'll hear us. They'll Go be, watch Scream! They'll be hearing involved.